The reading is taken from Genesis 35, verses 1 to 15. Jacob returns to Bethel. Then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there, and build an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you, and purify yourselves, and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and who has been with me wherever I've gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had, and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Sechem. Then they set out. And the terror of God fell upon the towns all around them, so that no one pursued them. Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Cana. There he built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, because it was there that God had revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. Now, Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and was buried under the oak below Bethel, so it was named Alon Bakuth. After Jacob returned from Paddan, Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. You'll no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you and kings will come from your body. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I also give to you. And I will give this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had talked with him. Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. Jacob called the place where God had talked with him Bethel. As we sit, let's pray. Our Father God, we pray that by your Spirit you will teach us from the story of Jacob, and we pray that we will be obedient to what you want us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. I have a question for you. The question is this. What are you doing to construct your public image? How are you seeking to manipulate what others think of you? Maybe your Facebook page, those lovely photos, all your achievements listed, those holidays, your remarkable views on life, the universe, and everything. Or maybe you're at the stage of filling in your UCAS form for university entry, and you're carefully constructing your personal statement. Carefully crafted to persuade admissions tutors that you are a high achiever, that you're motivated and altogether lovely. 
Or maybe you're actually at uni now, and you're building your CV. Very important, build your CV. Involvement in university life. Commitment to the community. Work experience to improve your chances in the job market. But perhaps you're beyond that. Maybe you're in work. And now you're constructing your career path. You're switching jobs to gain wider experiences. You're being willing to work abroad. You're looking for training opportunities. Perhaps time out to do an MBA. Or maybe you're much later on in life, like me, and your concern is about your legacy. Have you left your mark on the world? Perhaps what might go into your obituary if your achievements have been sufficient? Now, there's little doubt that Jacob merited an obituary. He dominates the story in 10 chapters of Genesis, from chapters 25 to 35. And he returns to center stage in 48 and 49, just before he dies. So what might one write about Jacob? Well, the first thing about him is that he built a fortune from nothing after a most unpromising start. As you probably remember, he and his uh, brother Esau were twins, but Esau came out first. So Esau was the firstborn, and by the customs of the day, he stood to inherit at least two-thirds of the family wealth and the family name. But although uh, Jacob came out second, was born second, he came out grasping the heel of his brother Esau. And that's where he got his name from, because Jacob means grasps the heel. Actually, it was also a word which, or phrase which was used figuratively for he deceives. Now, tricky by name and tricky by nature, as they grew up, Jacob schemed to supplant Esau. And the first opportunity came when Esau came back absolutely starving after a hunting expedition. So it's page 27 of the Pew Bibles, and it's Genesis 25, and I'm reading from verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. But Esau's foolish consent was not enough. Their father Isaac would have to agree to Esau being displaced. So with the connivance of his mother, 
uh, Rebekah in chapter 27, Jacob passes himself off as Esau to his father, whose sight is failing, and he persuades his father to bless him, that is, recognize him as his heir. But the maneuver is too tricky by half. Esau is naturally enraged and threatens to kill Jacob, and Jacob flees for his life with nothing. Well, he puts 400 miles between him and Esau, and he goes to work with his uncle Laban. And he's put in charge of Laban's flock of sheep and goats. The whole deal is uh, recorded in chapter 30. Jacob can keep any spotted or speckled sheep or goat, and the others belong to Laban. However, Laban has the same tricky gene as Jacob, and he secretly removes all the streaked and spotted mating animals and entrusted them to his sons to take them away. Now, Jacob responded with a counterploy in mating the animals that I don't understand, and nor does anybody who is an expert in animal husbandry. But it worked. Chapter 30, verse 43. In this way, Jacob grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and maidservants and manservants and camels and donkeys. And this so riled Laban and his sons that for a second time, Jacob had to run away, but this time he took the loot with him. And with wealth came power and influence in Canaan, where he settled. Sufficient for him to be welcomed by the Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, when Jacob goes to join his son, Joseph. Now second, a modern obituarist would certainly draw attention to the women in Jacob's life. He works seven years to get the right to marry his beautiful cousin, Rachel. But somehow, we're not told how, Laban inserts Rachel's less attractive sister, Leah, into the bridal bed. As the writer of Genesis puts it, chapter 29, verse 25, when morning came, there was Leah. Jacob eventually got the beautiful Rachel, but the cost is great not just seven more years working for Laban, but an utterly dysfunctional home with two sad and jealous women, a situation made worse when the two women give their maids to Jacob as concubines. The treatment of women in this story is outrageous and repulsive. But thirdly, an eminent obituarist would undoubtedly have noted Jacob's achievement in fathering 12 sons. Not any old sons. These are the sons whose descendants would go on to form the tribes who occupied Canaan in the 13th century BC, who were united under the kings of Israel around about 1050 BC, and continued as a major and political economic force 
for about 300 years. We still have them, Israel. And so, on the plus side, we have Jacob as a wealthy and powerful entrepreneur who, through his descendants, would found a nation. And on the negative side, we have his complicated and abusive marital affairs and his unpleasant track record in dealing with people. Not for nothing was he called Jacob the Deceiver. Now, as you probably know, this evening's sermon series is structured around the heroes and heroines of faith of the Old Testament in Hebrews 11, and that includes Jacob. But here's a surprise. First, there's just one verse about this dominant figure in the account in Genesis. And second, there's no reference whatsoever to his achievements. This is what the writer of the Hebrews writes. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. The latter, leaned on top of his staff, worshipped as he leaned on top of his staff, is seemingly inconsequential. It's the last verse of Genesis 47. The blessing of Joseph's sons, again apparently inconsequential, is the subject of a bizarre account in Genesis 48. The rest of Jacob's life is completely ignored. What is going on here? The point is simply that Jacob's life was characterized by lack of faith. Tricky Jacob has two encounters with God in his life. The first is at Bethel, as he is running away from Esau. Does he trust God for his future? No. Ever the negotiator, he bargains with God. If you look after me on my travels, then I will come back to this place to worship you. And that was the subject of our reading this evening. Genesis 35, on page 38. Let me read to you again, 35, 2 and 3. Then Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you, and purify yourselves, and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and who has been with me wherever I have gone. God fulfilled his part of the bargain according to, to Jacob, so Jacob fulfilled his. The second encounter was Jacob's return to Canaan, when he is mortally afraid of the reception he's likely to receive from Esau. The story is in chapter 32. It's a mysterious account of a mysterious encounter, and you need to read it for yourself. But it's not a story of Jacob trusting God for his reconciliation with Esau. On the contrary, he wrestles with God and demands that God blesses him. He's very far from submitting to God at that point. 
So what was Jacob doing when he blessed the two sons of Joseph? He is finally, at the end of his life, acknowledging and trusting the promise God made to him at Bethel. Back to chapter 35 and verses 11 and 12. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will come from your body. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I also give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. The promise that Jacob's descendants would become a nation and a community of nations, which is, of course, an integral part in God's plan to save humankind. Though, of course, Jacob didn't know that. So back to my question, what stage are you at? Are you constructing your personal image on Facebook? Are you crafting your personal statement for your UCAS form? Are you drawing up a career plan and positioning yourself for your next job move? Or are you just thinking about what, how you're going to leave your mark in the world? And where does your faith come into this? Are you like Jacob? Are you bargaining and struggling with God, but not submitting to him the worship of your whole life? Doing your own thing, succeeding up to a point, but living with anxiety in relationship to others, afraid of what they will think of you or do to you. And what will it all look like when your life ends? Will your obituary read like that of the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews on Jacob? Implicitly, your whole life was a muddle and a mess because you did not trust God until the very end when you finally realized that God could be trusted. Don't follow the example of Jacob. Start really trusting God now, whatever stage you're at. Let's pray. Our Father God, help us to become heroes and heroines of faith, trusting you for the whole of our lives, now and in the years ahead. Amen.